Greetings. Welcome to White Throne Baptist Church Online. I am Eric Newcomer, and this week we'll be taking a look at Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and we'll actually be catching the last few verses of chapter 2, so you want to turn to Exodus 2, and we'll be looking mostly at chapter 3 for our study today. We're continuing a series called Beginnings, and what this series of sermons is designed to do is using the first five books of the Bible to outline those books in such a way as to give us understanding of the entirety of the Bible, which means we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about the covenants that God makes with his people. And we've already looked at some of the covenants that he's made with mankind in general, with Adam and with Noah. But now we're beginning to look at the covenant he had with Abraham. And we're going to be looking at the very beginnings of Israel. He's going to establish yet another covenant inside the Abrahamic covenant with the nation Israel concerning the land. Well, we've come to one of uh, history's most favorite accounts in the Bible, and that's the account of the exodus of the people from Egypt, because there's much here that people can relate to. It is a, a tremendous story of redemption, of bringing a, a persecuted people out of an oppressor state. And so it certainly has a lot of appeal. The background to what we're going to study today would be Genesis chapter 50, probably about halfway through that chapter and up to Exodus chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to start at Exodus 2, 23. So if you want to pause here and read those real quick just to catch up, that might be helpful to you. But here's where we left off. We left off with Joseph and a total of 70 people, descendants, all descendants, the children and grandchildren, and maybe by then some great-grandchildren of Jacob, who becomes renamed Israel. 70 of them end up in Egypt at the time of Joseph to escape the famine. They, they came down there, and I invite you to go back and take a listen to what happened, or better yet, read the chapters 35 through 50 of the book of Genesis. And what we see is uh, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, God gives a summary of their time in Egypt, and they were very fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied greatly. Some of the same language that we heard of in Genesis chapters 1 and 9, where it's, it reiterated to mankind, be fruitful and multiply. That's what he wants. Lots of people. And in fact, when we crunch the numbers, when we discover after the Exodus, they do a head count of how many people they have. There's over 600,000 of just men, just men ages 20 and above. So it doesn't count the children or the women. So we estimate that coming out of Egypt was at least a couple million, maybe 10 million, up to maybe 10 million people of the nation Israel coming out of Egypt. So indeed, they were very prosperous in their 400 years in Egypt, having uh, multiplied to a very significant number of people. Now, there was a new king uh, over them that did not know them. Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 says there's a new king who did not know Joseph. And he decided, you know what? These people are getting too numerous. Uh, they're going to be a threat to us. And so what they did is they enslaved them and they ruled very ruthlessly over them. And almost 400 years passed until we find ourselves at the end of Exodus chapter 2. 
Now, the Egyptians actually took steps to limit the population uh, of the people of Israel, but they weren't having much success. They ordered, they finally ordered the slaughter of all male children. And that's where we meet Moses. His mother hid him as a three month old infant, uh, hid him uh, to get him away from the authorities who would uh, seek for his life. He ends up, by a very interesting uh, twist, being raised in Pharaoh's household. And so we meet him again when he's 40 years old. He has great concern over his people. He murders an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew person, or that is an Israelite. And he finds out it becomes known, and it's not even very appreciated by his people. And he flees for his life to a place called Midian, where he meets a, a wife, has a family, and he shepherds for 40 years. So where we find him at the end of chapter 20 or chapter two, beginning of chapter three, is he is now 80 years old and he's been a shepherd for 40 years in the wilderness areas around Midian, which was east of Egypt. Well, what we're going to see from this today as we read is we're going to see that God can be trusted to be both willing and able to keep all of his promises. And we're going to see this in the life of the Israelites, and we're going to see how it very directly applies to us today. So let's begin by reading, starting in Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 23. And we're going to go through chapter 3, verse 22. So here's what it says there, beginning in verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. So this would be the king who was king during the time that Moses was raised. And when Moses killed a man, this king was seeking for his life. So this is an important point because Moses can now go safely go back to Egypt. Uh, so this king is gone and it says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of my people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, that is, I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of the of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, this scripture today, Lord, says so much about you and what you did and therefore who you are. And so we pray today that you would make these things plain to us. Give us faith to embrace your message for us and help us see the relevance of these things to our very own situation this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with uh, the Lord's blessing, let's, uh, let's go forward and take a look at this. Again, I want to remind you that the main idea here that we're going to see today is that God can be trusted to be both willing and able to keep all of his covenant promises. So what we're going to take a look at is we're going to see here what it is that God did. What God did, he did many things here, and I want to bring some of these to your attention. First of all, what he did is he heard what they had said. Uh, he heard the people cry out to him. It says in, in chapter 2, verse 24, he heard their groaning. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, um, that he has seen the affliction and heard their cry. And in verse nine, he says, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. So God hears the cries of his people. They cried out for him. 
Andy hears. And this is a recurring theme in the Bible. This is something regular that can be counted on. God hears his people. Proverbs 15, 29 says this, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And then we'll look at, take a look at Psalm 145, uh, or another Psalm later on. It's going to tell us more about that. Psalm 145 says this about him. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So then this is a promise for his people. This is not necessarily a promise for someone else. It's those who call on him in truth. He fulfills, it says, the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. So God hears the cries of his people and he works through these, through hearing these. And we can say very safely from what we learn in the New Testament about prayer is we can tell you as God's people, do not expect to receive anything that you have not prayed for. In the book of James, James tells the people there are two reasons why you're not having prayers answered. Number one is you're not asking. And number two is that you ask amiss to spend it on your own desires. In other words, you're asking for things that God really doesn't want you to have that you just really want you to have. And so that first one is important. We must ask, but he will hear. God also saw And it's one thing that he hears the cries of his people, but he also sees and hear his hearing and his seeing go together. It says he saw the people of Israel, which means he is aware of their situation. And in verse seven of chapter three, he says he has seen their affliction. And in verse nine, he has seen their oppression. And so he doesn't just know what we tell him. When we cry out to him, he sees not only us, he hears not only our cry, but he sees every detail of the entire situation all around him. And it's very important for us to realize that, that he knows more about any given situation than we do, even our own hearts. Now in uh, chapter three, verse 16, it's kind of important for us to understand that the beginning of his message to the people through Moses is that he has indeed seen what has been done. And he sends Moses to the people with this. He says, go gather them together and say this to them, the Lord, the God of your father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So God heard and God saw. And then also God remembered. In verse 24, it said, when God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant with Abraham. This is incredibly important. You know, it says in Psalm 105 verse eight, that God remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, that's a way of saying forever. He remembers it forever. And here's really what we want to know, because this brings forth the reason that he sees and he hears. Why does he see what's going on with his people? Why does he hear their cries when they lift their cries up to him? They hear and they see because God has a covenant with them. He made a covenant and he remembers it. Now, when it says he remembers, don't think that he might've forgotten along the way that it took 400 years because he just kind of put them on the side. He was dealing with other things and he forgot. No, he heard, saw, remembered. Those are all 
anthropomorphisms. In other words, they're a way of speaking of God like he's a man to help communicate to us what's going on here. There was no chance he would not hear or see, and there was no chance he would forget because God is omniscient. That is, he knows everything all the time. And he is very faithful. And so he had a covenant to keep and nothing is going to stand in the way of him keeping that covenant. So God heard, God saw, God remembered, and God knew. Uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I've surely seen the affliction. And look what it says at the end of the verse. I know their sufferings. And this is powerfully important for us to understand. He already said that he saw their situation. He saw not only them, but he saw what had been done to them. And he had heard their cries and surely in their cries, they were saying to him, Lord, they're doing this to us. They're doing that to us. And so he had heard all these things. He saw these things. He knew their whole situation inside and out. So why say this? Why say I know their sufferings? It's because he uses a word here to know something that is a word used of, of an intimate knowledge, a knowledge by experience, if you would. He knew their suffering. Now, this is, this is something that we can relate to as parents. If you are parents, if you have children, you understand some of what he's saying here because, it, in a sense, God suffers along with his people. And as he suffers along with them, he himself is suffering. Many of us as parents would rather be sick ourselves than to see our children sick. And we would rather something dread and painful and difficult happen to ourselves than would happen to our children. And this is a, a great truth that we understand, but it's more with God. It's more than just that. Because looking back, we understand then the significance of the saying. As we look back on this saying in the Old Testament, from our New Testament perspective, we understand this, that indeed... God does know suffering intimately and personally. He feels what we feel. It says of Jesus Christ when he was here, who was God in the flesh, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he didn't sin. He suffers as his people suffer. And we suffer when we see our children suffer, but it's more than that with God. Because in the New Testament, Paul makes a, a big deal out of the fact that we share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That is the suffering of Jesus people is an extension of himself. Now think of this. Uh, Paul looks at the suffering of the people of the church as the completion of Christ's suffering. Not that Christ didn't suffer enough on the cross. We know that the price was paid on the cross and that Jesus said it is finished. So the work of salvation was done on the cross. The suffering that Jesus went through that was a part of accomplishing and taking upon the wrath of God and accomplishing salvation for his people. That was completely finished on the cross. He said so. But there's more to it than that. Jesus Christ continues to suffer as his church suffers. And this makes sense as we hear in the New Testament how the church is described. It is described as children of God. 
And we already talked about how as parents, when our children suffer, we suffer. But it also speaks about the church as his bride, his bride, whom, you know, any, any groom with it worth his weight in salt wants to protect, wants to keep from difficulty and pain, wants to avoid those things and even take them on himself in her place if he has to. This is basic to a, a love relationship. But we're also called the body of Christ the actual body of Christ, he himself being the head is how we're described in the book of Ephesians. And so we understand that if one part of that body hurts, it is the body of Christ and Christ hurts along with him. So now we begin to see that it makes sense that Paul says, look, you know, as we suffer, we are suffering the sufferings of Christ himself. And we are even completing that of his suffering, which is yet to come. This very important and subtle thing. When God says he knows of suffering, he knows of it intimately. He knows of it by experience. And this is the God we serve. Well, so God not only, uh, re, not only knew, he revealed himself. And this is kind of the major gist of this chapter is this revelation with Moses. And we have a, a striking picture, as you may have seen on the, uh, on the opening slide there. This is a picture of Moses at the burning bush, a depiction of it. And, you know, I don't think God appeared in a bodily form like that, looking like an angel or whatever. But, you know, some of the descriptions of the Bible went into the artist's interpretation. But look at the way he's leaning back and he's covering his eyes to avoid seeing the thing. It's a dramatic work. And then the bare feet are seen. And then laying at his foot there is the staff which God uses to give him a sign. And so this is a, a picture of great drama. And this is a picture of, of power of God comes and he shows himself to Moses in this very dramatic way, in this dramatic scene. Well, it's the revelation of God. God revealed himself along with a new name. This is the first time God introduces himself as what is called Yahweh, or as it was pronounced uh, coming through the German church and the background of the church, Jehovah. And so when you hear Jehovah or Yahweh, what they're talking about is this word that means I am. It's four Hebrew letters, and the closest thing we have in English to it is Y-H-W-H. And it is known as the Tetragrammaton. In other words, the four letter word, because the Hebrews got to the point where they would not pronounce this word. Consequently, we don't really know how it's pronounced. That's why we say Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever. We're not really sure because they refuse to pronounce it. They would say Adonai, which means the Lord. So in your Bible, in order to make this clear, what your translators have done is when you see the word Lord in all caps, it's this word. So remember, four capital letters, L-O-R-D, refers to the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word that they would not say the name of the Lord, which means I am. And it's important that we come to this as the very beginning because he says, I am that I am. And perhaps maybe the very beginning of someone's walk with God and of learning God is this, to first of all, know that he is. 
And so he says, I know, or he says, I am that I am. And then and only then can we proceed to figure out what he is like. And he is going to show it when we by faith accept, okay, you are. Now tell me about yourself. And he does. He intervenes in the timeline of life to show himself, shows himself to Moses, shows himself to us through his word and through his people all the time. And here God actually speaks to him and introduces himself and then assigns a mission for him. Moses' life at this point is never the same. He's not only going to see God at work, God is going to perform many great works through Moses himself. He's going to have this powerful revelation of God. God's going to answer the prayers of his people and he's going to show them the true meaning of life, the universe, everything. God is in the business of revealing himself. Now this word, I am, the way it is phrased, it's I am twice connected by a conjunction. It's translated usually in the Bible as I am that I am, or I am who I am. All you need to know is that I am, that's the beginning of it. The way it's phrased and the way it's put out, some people say that means that he's self-existent because it uses a Hebrew imperfect verb, which is an incomplete action. In other words, it's something still going on. And then it's doubled, so he's going on and he's going on. Maybe this means that he is simply self-existent, which is true of God. No one created God. Nothing was before God. He is eternal, which doesn't mean that he lasts forever. That means he's outside time itself. But it brings many interesting points because Jesus uses this over and over and over again to introduce himself. In the Gospels, we see he says, I am all the time. And he says it in a particular way that is the Greek translation of what we see here in Exodus chapter 3. It says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection of the life. I'm the true vine, etc. His use of it and the way he uses it incites the leaders of the Jews against him for blasphemy. Probably the worst one he ever said to them was, before Abraham was, I am, which was one that really got them fired up at him. And you find most of those in the book of John. But anyway, Jesus is making a very clear statement by this. He, he is insinuating that he is that same one that introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. Indeed, Jesus was God in the flesh and he proved it and he claimed it. And he was eventually crucified for claiming it. But he is the I am. And he is the self-existent one. It also means, as we uh, hear of Jesus later, especially in the book of Revelation, referred to as him who was and is and is to come. That's a, a verb of being in the Greek. What we're looking at here, I am, that's a verb of being in the Hebrew. And the idea is that he was being, he is being, he will be being. <laughs> and he just keeps on being all the time. And so he is self-existent and eternal. He is the I am. So look for that in your Bible. When it's Lord in all caps, you know that you're dealing with this great word, Yahweh, uh, translated as the Lord. He revealed himself. And then he promised. In Exodus 3.17, he says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land, etc., etc. 
So not only does he remember his promises, his covenants that he has with his people, but he reaffirms them to subsequent generations. He keeps coming back to it. Remember, he made the promise to Abraham, and then he also spoke to Isaac about it, and he also spoke to Jacob about these things. He keeps reiterating this promise again and again to his people and through his people. And I want to remember at this time that this was predicted This was predicted in Genesis chapter 15 as God uh, talked to Abraham. Um, The Lord said to Abram, and this is at this covenant ceremony that uh, Abram has with the Lord. And the Lord says, go get some animals for sacrifice and all this. He gets all the animals. He places all the animals. God puts him to sleep because God is showing that I'm going to keep this covenant. This is my covenant I'm making, and I'm effectively going to keep both parts. And so then he has a covenant ceremony, but he says this during that ceremony. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great Possession. So this is exactly what the Lord has told Moses he's going to do is he says, I'm not only going to bring you out, I'm going to bring you out rich. Everyone's going to say to their neighbor, hey, give me stuff. And they're going to give them stuff and they're going to leave with the stuff. Have your kids carry the stuff out. It's kind of an exciting thing. If you really put yourself in this and that this makes God the ultimate shot caller because 400 years later, he does it. He fulfills it in every detail of it. And here he says, I promise to people who've only heard of him through their history. They've heard enough to be able to pray and cry out to him. They know of the promises of God. They know of this promised land. They know what he did uh, in the past with the patriarchs. They passed all this down verbally that he was faithful to them and prospered them and kept his promises to them. And so he comes to them now, all of a sudden intervening in history, sends this guy, Moses, talks to him and then begins to perform miracle after miracle, each one kind of increasing in its magnitude until this great crescendo of what we'll look at next time, the final uh, judgment that comes upon Israel and the people leave. So he has a track record to back up what he's saying. Now, this is what the Lord, this is part of what the Lord is doing with this nation Israel, is he's making a track record for himself so that by the time Jesus comes, there's a couple thousand years of prophecies for Jesus to fulfill proving who he is. And then when the gospel comes to us, now that Jesus has risen and is at the right hand of the Father, we don't have Jesus to see, but we have the word that shows that God again and again fulfills his promises to the letter and is never wrong. There's not one prophecy of the Bible that has failed. Now, there are many prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but we have a pretty good idea how that's going to happen. Hundreds have already been fulfilled, most of them in the person of Christ, many of them in the nation of Israel themselves. And so God has this track record to back up the fact that he gives these great promises. And so he appeals then to his history when he tells them who he is. He introduces himself to 
Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he tells Abraham or Moses <laughs> to go introduce yourself to the people and the elders of Israel saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who spoke to me. So he is appealing to his track record. The, the prophecies of God, the promises that he's fulfilled are everything to the believer. We have to have faith in something. We have faith in God, but faith in God to do what? According to what? How do we know God's going to do this? How do we know he's real? How do we know he's going to keep his promises? We know because he reveals it over and over and over again. So not only did God reveal himself here and God promised, but now God sends. He says to uh, Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Now I want you to note that this is not an invitation. Moses immediately has objections to this idea. In chapter four, he goes on and on with objections to this idea. Surely there's somebody else. Well, I'm not very good at speaking. And finally, he just says, send someone else. He just flat out refuses. But all the objections are ultimately handled by God and Moses ends up going. God promises and he begins immediately by sending Moses. And this is something we touched on last time. God works through his faithful people to bring about his plans. And although Moses is hesitant, even though he refuses, God gives him all he needs to succeed. He gives him the help of his brother Aaron. He gives him the great signs that he's able to do in the midst of the people. And Moses ultimately complies. So now we see a God that's not just sympathetic or empathetic, seeing and hearing. He's also a God that experiences it, knows, but he's a God of action. He's a God that's going to do something about it. He is not the God that looks at us and simply says, I feel your pain. He's the God that looks at us and says, I feel your pain. So here's what I'm doing. Here's this guy, Moses. He's going to bring you out. And that's what God did. God brought them out. You probably know the rest of the story. God successfully brings Israel out of Egypt with tremendous signs and wonders and even tremendous wealth. He destroys Pharaoh and his army. I'm sorry these are if these are spoilers to you, uh, but you need to read the story. It's very exciting how this all comes about so that there's no possibility of pursuit. So for next time, next time what we're going to cover is we're going to talk about this Passover celebration at the exodus of the people. And we're going to pick that up probably about chapter 12 or 13 in Exodus. So read up to that point and see what is happening and what God is doing with the people of Israel and with Pharaoh and how he brings this all about. But I want you to notice this in, in him bringing this, these people out of Egypt he keeps his promise to bring Israel into the promised land that he promised way back there to Abraham and reiterated it to Isaac and to Jacob, etc. But he does more than that. He liberates a people from oppression. They were being oppressed and he put an end to it. And he brought them out and gave them a life with himself. Not only does he liberate them, he judges the oppressor Egypt. Egypt gives up a great amount of wealth for the people of Israel to go, and they lose their entire army and even Pharaoh himself in this whole thing. And so God brings great judgment upon the people of the land. 
or of of Egypt. He also brings judgment upon the people of the land. When you get to the book of Joshua, you have the people going into the promised land. And I want to remind you of something. Way back there in Genesis chapter 15, we read earlier about this when he says they're going to be in a land not their own for 400 years. Look what he says uh, a couple verses later to Abraham. He says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, what God was doing is he was dealing with this other nation, the Amorites, who are some of the people living in the land. And he goes, you know, I can't send your people in there to take over just yet because these people don't deserve judgment just yet, but they will in 400 years. And sure enough, when God sends the people Israel into the promised land, he tells them city after city, people after people, wipe them all out, man, women, children, livestock, everything. And people read that in the Bible and they're horrified, but they're only horrified because they don't pay attention to the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this, those people had 400 years to straighten up. And not only this, the way that God brings them out of Egypt is so miraculous and profound and astounding that in the book of Joshua, when you read there that the people come into the land to take the land, the people in the land knew they were coming and they knew who they were and they knew how God brought them out of Egypt. So there was every opportunity for them to say, we surrender. We'll join up with you. Have the city, have whatever you want, spare only our lives. Either we will leave or we'll stay here and be your servants. They could have made that kind of deal, but most of them would not. But some did. One in particular, name is Rahab, is in the line of Christ. This all fits together when you pay attention to the context. He not only liberates a people, he judges the oppressor, he brings judgment on the people of the land, all within this. And during all this, he reveals himself and his power, putting the most significant account of the nation Israel right here in the word of God for us to enjoy for many generations. And so he has revealed himself, shown himself by bringing them out. Well, there are two things that go hand in hand in studying the Bible. And those two things are what God did and who God is. And what we see here today is what he did. We looked at several things that he did. Just a reminder, he heard, he saw, he remembered, he knew, he revealed, he promised, he sent, he brought. He did all these things, but all these things that he did, they show us who he is. Anytime we learn about something God did, we should be thinking about what does this say about who he is? And this says a lot about who he is. I want you to think on that in the interim between this week and next, but we'll start with a few. First of all, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's keeping a promise that he made to people over 400 years prior to this. He's keeping that promise to bring these people out of this place and bring them into a land and make them a great nation. And remember the promise at the root of all this is he's being faithful to what he told Adam and Eve the very day they sinned that he will bring a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. 
He is bringing forth that person, Jesus Christ, through all of this. He's being faithful to get it done. This, uh, the things that he did here also show us that he is omniscient. He knows everything. The Egyptians aren't going to mess with God's people without him knowing about it. It's just an impossibility because he's all-knowing. He's also just. He is not going to let this mistreatment of his people go unpunished. And we call that his justice that he's going to make sure that there is a judgment come upon them. Now, God doesn't always judge people in their life. (laughs) Some of that judgment's reserved for after their life in a place called hell or on the cross at Calvary. God is perfectly just, and you can be assured that God will bring justice upon those who do wrong or Christ will step in their place and take the justice of God on their behalf. This is really important. This frees us up from a lot of things because this great justice of God means that we don't need to try to take revenge on anybody. That's why the Bible tells us that the Lord says, justice is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And it's told to us in a context that we're not ourselves to try to take revenge for ourselves. Leave it up to God. He's going to deal with people one way or another. And when he is done, we will be more satisfied with the results than anything we could possibly have done. So God is very just in what he does. And we see also from this account that God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He has all the power. And what you read in the chapters after this, you see that these great miracles that he brings upon the people of Egypt, some, some of which they're able to fake in a way, but that's all they are is they're fake. It gets to a point where they can't reproduce them. They can't come close to that. He does things to them that, that are just astounding. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. But understand this, he is compassionate. He is compassionate. He sees his people. He knows their suffering and he acts. True compassion implies action. True compassion implies that you're going to do something about it. Remember in the book of James, he says, what good is it if you see someone who's hungry and says, God bless you, you know, feed the person. That would be the right thing to do. And God is compassionate in that way that he's actually going to do something. When Jesus was uh, spoken of in his ministry, several times he looked upon the people and he had compassion and that immediately ensued into action. He had compassion on people and it always resulted in action. Either he would teach them or he would feed them or he would heal somebody or raise someone from the dead. He had this great compassion. It always moved him to action, his ultimate action, going to the cross for our sins. So that brings us to the last part. Whatever we look at in the Bible, uh, we need to see that indeed it means something to us today. And what it means to us today is this. God can be trusted to be both willing and able to keep his covenant promises. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment. Both willing and able to keep his promises. 
He doesn't make promises he's not able to keep or that he's not willing to keep. He is always willing and able to keep his promises. And for that reason, he can be trusted. You can throw everything you have on Christ because he can be trusted with it. You can give your life to him. And indeed, when you believe, you will. And you can trust him with that life because he is trustworthy, because he's both willing and able to keep all the promises he makes. Well, I want to share with you something from Psalm 102 that kind of summarizes some of these things and looks at it not just for what it meant then, but what it means now. Take a look at this. In Psalm 102, starting in verse 18, it said, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Now this is very interesting because this seems to on the surface be speaking of the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt. And indeed there are other things in the psalm that seem to indicate this is what the psalmist is speaking about. And it says, hey, let's make sure this is heard from generation to generation that the Lord looked down there and just like the words that we find in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 3, he looked down there, he saw what was going on, he went down there and he did something about it. He looked down from his holy height to hear the groans of the prisoners and to set free those who were doomed to die. See, they were going to die in their captivity. They were going to live in Egypt until finally they, they died there. And that was an awful thing to die in a land that was not the land of promise. That's why Joseph says before he dies, he says, you know, have my bones buried in the land because I know one day y'all are going there. And he was absolutely right. What a beautiful promise. He heard the groans of the prisoners to set free those doomed to die. Why? Verse 21, so that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. It's that mount upon which Jerusalem is found. And that became the capital of Israel. That became the place where the kings were, where David wrote many of his psalms, where the temple was built, and that's where the worship was done to God. But it's also the place where Jesus was crucified. It's also the place where the faith, the Christian faith, as it's known, the, the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ, that's where all this came to be in Jerusalem. And indeed, the name of the Lord, see it's in all caps there, the covenant making I am, that they can declare there his praise, that they can praise him there. And then this is interesting, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. See, in this point, between the book of Exodus and really pretty much to the end of the prophets, the focus is on this particular nation 
of Israel and their particular kings that they have, the kings in the line of David and the other line of kings uh, of the northern kingdom after they split. All the focus is on them. But look at this psalmist prior to Jesus Christ coming. He says, I'm talking about when peoples, that means multiple ethnicities, gather together and kingdoms, not just their kingdom, kingdoms to worship the Lord. Folks, that's us. This promise is not just that Israel one day would worship the Lord there in Jerusalem in that place, but know that people of all ages, from all walks of life, from all over the world, from all the the centuries of history would be gathered together to worship in a place that we know is called the New Jerusalem. See, the Lord has promises layered upon promises, layered upon promises, and he's working up the deck, fulfilling them until he gets to that final promise, the return of our Lord and King Jesus Christ, who's going to come and unite all his people together, and we indeed will worship him in glory forever out of the presence and influence of sin, all of our infirmities and all of our sins washed away in perfection to worship him and enjoy him forever. Now, what Psalm 102 seems to do there and other places as well that we'll look at more in the coming weeks is they point to this whole Exodus situation as prefiguring the salvation that Jesus Christ provides. Oh, we're going to see this so crystal clear next time in the Passover when we realize that God gave them certain things to observe on the night that they were finally taken out of Egypt, taken out of their oppression and liberated with great wealth to be a people who knows God, walks with them in the wilderness and eventually in the promised land. All that prefigures the salvation that Jesus Christ would bring. And the people that he would liberate from slavery to sin and death. And people that he would bring alongside himself to walk with God. Folks, the promises of Jesus have no question that they will be fulfilled. He promises that if we come to him, we will not be disappointed. The Bible promises that those who believe in him will be saved. He promises that those who are heavy laden can put their burden on him and take his burden on, which is light. All these great promises of Jesus are not only prefigured by these, but are guaranteed by these. And that God kept his promise once, he's going to keep it again. God did these wonderful, miraculous things to bring the people out of Egypt. He can do it again and again with each person he brings out of bondage to sin. Are you one of those people? Are you in bondage to sin? Are you enslaved by the ways of the world? Are you discouraged by the ways of the world? Do you not know that if you call out to God, he hears you? Call out to him on his terms. Don't boss him around to say, hey, I know you're there and this is my problem and this is really what I need, but you know, not my will, yours be done. But Help me out here. Believe in Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfill his promises. And repent of your sins and turn from your ways of doing things. And turn to him and you will be saved.
And this is the promise of Jesus. Now, sometimes we're, even as we've received the salvation of the Lord, sometimes we're discouraged. And there's a lot of discouragement in the world right now. We're in the midst of a pandemic that has very much stifled the economy. We're in the midst of a very contentious election. Uh, People seem more divided than ever. And it might feel like God's not doing anything about it. It might feel like he's absent. Folks, how did people feel for 400 years in servitude in Egypt before Moses came? They felt like God wasn't even there. His promises are all moot. Surely this isn't going to happen. What did they have to carry him through? They had the word of God. The, the, the promises passed down. The account of their history passed down from person to person, generation to generation. They had that to cling to in faith. And folks, we have the word of God to cling to in faith. In 400 years, they might have felt like nothing was going on with God, nothing direct. But you know what? He was dealing with the Amorites at the time. He was dealing with Egypt at the time. He was increasing the number of his people. He was preparing and preserving the line of Christ. He is always at work. You may feel like at this time in your life that he's distant from you. You may feel like he's abandoned this nation, but he is definitely at work. And if you want to be ready to join him, be faithful with what you have in front of you. Hold on to his word. Do your best to obey him. Pray to him continually. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. And the beauty of this is we get to join with him in this. Moses is enlisted by God. He he joins with him and he gets to see all these things. And look at the front row seat of this. I mean, at first, all Moses sees is the task. I'm not up to this. I can't do this. This is my kind of thing. I'm not the kind of guy for this. You need someone else. God said, no, I'm, I'm choosing you. Right now, he chooses you for something. He wants you to join him in his work. He wants you to join with your local church and bringing the word of God to people. He wants you to begin to learn the word of God so that you can effectively witness to those around you, that you can be more faithful in your walk with him, that you can be delivered from the sins which control your life. He has all those things for you. And he would ask you to turn aside from what you're doing and go and take a look. We might not have a burning bush that gets our attention, but look at this word of God. Look what has happened in his fulfillment of these things. Look at the impossibility of him fulfilling these words, and yet he does it, and it's written down for us. And we can search those scriptures to see if these things are true. Join in and be a part of it. Worship this covenant-making, promise-keeping, redeeming I am of the universe. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you because of your incredible works. And Lord, if you had done nothing, you'd still be worthy of praise. For your works simply reveal who you are and who you are is, is always existent. Who you are is from, the, from eternity past to eternity future as far as we see things, Lord. You're the eternal and wonderful I am. Lord, we praise you this day and we ask you to give us understanding of these things. Give each individual today application of these things. Give them the faith to act wherever they are in their walk with you. Be it the very first time, I pray that you grant them faith unto repentance 
that they would repent of their sins and turn from them and trust in Jesus Christ who took their place in the payment of the penalty. And I pray, Lord, that they would be granted the assurance of the life of Christ as he rose, that they would know surely they will rise too. Lord, I pray for all those discouraged. I pray that you would encourage. Show how you acted in the past because we know you will surely do it again. And last time you really intervened in this world, you gave a promise. You promised you'd come back. But while you're gone, we have a task to do to make disciples and we have all authority to do it and I pray Lord that you would encourage us in that endeavor and make yourself known to many more people this day we praise you and thank you for joining us in Jesus name amen and I thank you for joining us too so please uh, write uh, contact us anytime anytime you like to uh, you can write to us at White's Run Baptist at gmail.com. I'll get right back there in a minute. Uh, Whites Run Baptist at gmail.com. Those emails are personally uh, answered. We'll get personal attention to you for those. You can also learn more about us at whitesrun.org, whitesrun.org. And you can join us uh, Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. here at Whites Run Baptist Church. You can find directions on our uh on our website there. I don't recommend using a certain navigational software. You won't find us very well that way. We're kind of out in the country. But whitethrun.org has all the information there. Join us at 11 o'clock. Worship with us. You'll have the short version of this sermon. Uh, I always include extra for you online, but uh, the short version will be there for us. And uh, worship with us in person at Whitethrun Baptist Church. Thank you. May God bless you.